0: This morning, I would invite you to join me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures, Genesis 38, this morning. Genesis 38. Now, in Genesis 37, we were introduced to a young man named Joseph... Joseph suffered terrible injustice at the hand of his brothers who sold him as a slave to merchants traveling to Egypt. To cover their crime, they then lied to their father Jacob about it, leaving Jacob to conclude that a wild beast had devoured Joseph and that Joseph was torn to pieces. Yet Joseph survived. And Joseph even thrived. However, the life of Joseph is not the story of a victim who would eventually beat the odds and overcome the obstacles. Rather, the life of Joseph is the story of the good hand of God's providence in spite of what we might perceive as negative circumstances in this life. In fact, In Genesis chapter 45, many years later, Joseph declared to his brothers in Egypt, it was not you who sent me here, it was God. And then later in Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. And the powerful lesson from the life of Joseph is that the good hand of God is directing every circumstance to achieve his purposes for his glory. But no sooner do we begin the biography of the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 when we are interrupted by Genesis 38. Now, I was tempted to skip Genesis 38, and continue with the life of Joseph in chapter 39, for in fact, many commentators do that very thing until I reminded myself that all scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that the things that were written before were written for our learning, Romans 15, verse 4. And so with some discomfort, but without apology, I would have us read Genesis 38 this morning and discover this. In the wisdom of God, I've written this in your notes, in his wisdom, God preserved Genesis 38 for us not as an interruption to the Joseph story, but as an essential development to the larger meta-narrative of the scripture. That is the grand narrative. That is the bigger overarching story of God's redemptive plan for fallen man. And toward that end, The notes I prepared for you this morning are different than what I normally present to you. Normally we follow the progression of each verse through a scripture passage and then I title each section of the scripture in parallel or in some alliterated way. However, in this case, the notes that I prepared and will present to you this morning are the interpretive applications of what we will study from Genesis 38. I would ask that you set your notes aside follow the scripture with me, and then capture the the points of your notes as the conclusion, the end of our study. In all of this, we're going to ask and answer the question, why? Why is this chapter, Genesis 38, part of God's revelation to us? Let's pause for prayer. God in heaven, it is with great anticipation that we now come to approach your holy word, to read it, to study it, to understand it, as you have preserved it for us. God, the themes of this chapter are, are heavy and they're dark. But yet, Lord, you intend for us to, to know something, to learn something from this text. I pray that you'll help us toward that end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Genesis 38 is not about Joseph. It's about Judah. Judah. It's about Judah, his sons, and his sin, and his seed. Genesis 38, verse number 1, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. What time was that? Well, this was the time when Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery in chapter 37, verse 28, For 20 pieces of silver. It's at that time when Joseph was sold, there were 10 sons of Jacob remaining. Joseph is now gone. Benjamin is not yet. And so the 10 sons of Jacob each would have pocketed two pieces of silver as their cut from this transaction of selling Joseph. With two pieces of silver burning a hole in Judah's pocket, I can imagine that Judah didn't sleep much that first few nights. He was restless. He was feeling guilty of the crime he had committed and the lie he had told to his father Jacob about it. And each day Judah was forced to watch his father grieve the loss of Joseph in chapter 37 verse 34 you see it every time his father would speak of jo- Joseph Judah's heart would seize with pains of guilt and so Judah tried to escape the haunting memory of what he and his brothers had done to Joseph and Judah ran into the trap of the wicked one in this case the trap was a man named Hira Genesis 38 verse number 1 it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, Hira will appear three times in this account. Hira began as Judah's acquaintance, then he became Judah's associate, and then he became Judah's accomplice in further sinfulness. Proverbs warns, walk with the wise and you'll be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed and this will be the case for Judah and Hira here. Hira was an ungodly influence on Judah. Verse number two. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, the third son now, and called his name Shelah. He was born at Chazib when she Bore him, So Judah married an unnamed Canaanite who bore him three sons. Ur, verse 3, Onan, verse 4, and Shelah, verse number 5. Along the way, it was time for Judah's first son, Ur, to marry. So Ju- Judah secured a wife for his first son, Ur. Her name was Tamar. Look at verse number 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. However, because Ur was wicked, God killed Verse number seven, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. Tamar is now a widow. So Judah instructed his second son, Onan, to marry his brother's widow, Tamar, to continue the family line. Verse number eight, and Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now this is bizarre for us to consider Today, however, it was a re- regular practice in the ancient times. It was called Leverite marriage. And centuries later, Moses would write of this in the book of Deuteronomy. The scripture is before you. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family... Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, be careful to note that this practice did not originate with the law of Moses, but rather it was common practice in the, in the Near East for, for centuries preceding that. that was, th- this is the practice that would later bring Boaz and Ruth together. We know it as the kinsman redeemer. But in Genesis 38, Onan resented the idea that his son through Tamar would only further the cause of his dead brother, Er, and not his own. And so consequently, Onan didn't want to marry Tamar and father, children by her, verse number nine. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground lest he should give her an heir to his brother, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. Now, people have made different interpretive applications of this, but I submit that Onan's selfishness here displeased the Lord, and against his father Judah, and against his sister-in-law Tamar, and against his dead brother Ur, Onan acted in selfishness, in self-interest, at the expense of everyone else. He did not fulfill his responsibility or his duty in this case. Perhaps if you're thinking ahead or Maybe reading ahead, there's one son left. There was Ur, there was Onan, and there's one more son, Sheila. God had killed Ur and Onan. However, Shelah was was young and not prepared t- to marry. Look at verse number 10. The thing displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also, that's Onan. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown, the third son. For he said, lest you also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. You see, Judah is superstitious here at this point. And this is his logic. Tamar is the common denominator between the death of his son Ur and the death of his son Onan, it must be Tamar who is the curse. So Tamar, you go, you go back and live with your father. My third son, Sheila, is not old enough for you to marry yet. I don't want him to ever marry you in any way because he might also end up dead. And so it's at this point, after the, the, these circumstances, that Judah's unsaved friend, Hira, the Adulamite for verse number one, shows up again in the picture. When Judah's wife dies, instead of him finding comfort from the God of his father, Judah found comfort in his unsaved friend, Hira, Hira, verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. That's the Canaanite from verse 1. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend, Hira, the Adulamites. So poor Judah. I mean, tragic life circumstances are happening. His sons are being killed by the Lord his wife is dying. He's grieving. And Hira says it's sheep shearing time in Timnah, Judah. Come along. Let's have a good time. It will take your mind off things. At this point, it doesn't seem that there's anything necessarily wrong that's happening here and going to Timnah. However, keeping company with Hira will prove to be destructive to Judah for Judah will find himself in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people and sin will prevail. We have to be so careful about the companions that we keep and the places we go because Satan will give our, our wicked hearts occasion to sin. In the meantime, the third son of Judah, that's Sheila, is now growing up. And it's high time for Judah to fulfill his promise from verse number eleven and give Sheila to Tamar as her husband. He doesn't want to do this. He he needs to fulfill the Levite marriage custom so that Sheila would father a, a son with Tamar. But Judah had no intention of fulfilling that promise, and he he wanted to steer clear of Tamar, and Tamar knew it. So Tamar, upon hearing that Judah was going to Timnah, devised a plan, verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, twice widowed now, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself... And sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as, as wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So from Judah's sons, verses 1 through 10. Now to Judah's sins, verses 11 and following. Judah is soliciting a harlot, negotiating the terms, verse 17. And he said to her, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, "'What pledge shall I give you?' So she said, "'Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand.' Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him." Judah offered a kid of the goats. If this wasn't so offensive, it would be funny. A a goat, really. However, because Judah didn't have a kid of the goats with him... And because Tamar knew who she was dealing with, Tamar demanded that Judah give her his signet ring and cord and staff as a security deposit, if you will. And so then following Judah's sin with Tamar, Tamar replaced her harlot costume with her regular attire. Verse number 19, so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah then went on his way to redeem his signet ring and his bracelets and his staff and all of these things and, uh, and then to have um, a kid of the goats delivered to her as he promised. But notice the name of the courier, the one who is delivering the goats. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adullamites, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. This is the third time now that Hira, the Adulamite shows up. And, of course, he goes to exchange the goat for these other items, and, and the harlot could not be found. In fact, the people denied that there was ever a harlot in that place in the first place, verse 21 Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that, Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. And so when the news came regarding Tamar, Judah immediately called for her to be burned accusing her of shaming the family and dishonoring his sons. Probably in Judah's mind, she is still to blame for, her, for his son's deaths. And I can imagine the news of the public burning spread like wildfire, pardon the pun, through the, through the town. And the executioner hurried to, to Tamar's house and dragged her off to the village street, to the square, and perhaps the stake may have already been set and the ropes were ready to bind her. But then Tamar yells, wait, and produces the signet and the cord and the staff, and they belong to Judah. Verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Folks, from Judah's sons, to Judah's sins. Now to Judah's seed. Let me finish the chapter, verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread, bound it into his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back in his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Folks, why? Why does God tell us of this wickedness? Why did God preserve the offensive, the distasteful and offensive record that we've just read this morning? Why did he Preserve it for us. The chapter is ranked with themes that are worse than shameful. Let me leave you with three answers to the why question, and that's your notes this morning. Your notes here. First, number one, I believe that Genesis 38 is important because, number one, it demonstrates Israel's necessary exile to Egypt. Now, Genesis 37 told us how the nation of Israel eventually wound up in Egypt. Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt. We know that he was later promoted. promoted. He organized famine relief. He invited his family to come to Egypt for survival. But Genesis 38 now tells us why the migration to Egypt was necessary. I don't believe in the sovereign, all-wise plan of God that Israel's move to Egypt was only for famine relief. I believe those are the circumstances that God used to get the children of Israel to migrate to Egypt. But I believe there was a bigger reason why God wanted the children of Israel in Egypt. For the sons of Jacob, we call them the children of Israel, were living ungodly lives in the land of Canaan as we have read in these recent chapters in Genesis. We have now, just now, read that Judah's closest friend was a heathen man, Hira the Edomite. verse number one. Judah married a Canaanite, verse number two. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God took his life, verse seven. Onan's selfishness displeased the Lord, verse 10, and God took his life. Judah withheld Shelah from marrying Tamar, verse 11. Tamar deceived Judah, verse 15. Judah solicited a harlot, in verse 16. And folks, something had to be done with God's people in Canaan. Namely, exile to the land of Egypt was God's remedy, not so much as a point of punishment, but as a point of preservation of their purity. Now think about this, follow me. The first generation of the children of Israel or the children of Jacob who are living in Canaan were intermarrying with the people of the land and embracing the wicked practices of those around him. I think it's fair to assume that if Israel would have remained in Canaan at this point, it would have only been a couple generations before they would have been totally corrupted and assimilated. But when Israel journeyed to Egypt, while it was a bitter experience... It was also a purifying experience. For if Israel wouldn't separate from the ungodly peoples around them, then Egypt would separate from Israel. Now, turn the page, just a couple pages away. Genesis 43, verse number 32. Genesis 43, verse number 32. Joseph's in Egypt. His brothers have come for famine relief. Joseph says, you must bring Benjamin Chapter 43, verse 32. So they set him by a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians would not eat food with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians kept themselves separate from the Hebrews. Turn the page again. Look at chapter 46. Chapter 46, verse 34. This is the occasion now when Jacob moves everyone to Egypt. They settle in the land of Goshen. Chapter 46, verse 34, that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from your youth till now. They were were farmers. They were shepherds, both we and also our fathers. The Hebrew people were just sheep keepers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Here's what I'm proposing. Israel's move to Egypt was necessary to protect Israel from their own perversion and to preserve their purity as God's people. And I think we learn about that in Genesis 38. There's another reason why I believe that Genesis 38 is important to the meta-narrative, the big, grand narrative or story of the Bible. And that is for us this morning, that's number two, to rebuke our presumption and to challenge our despair. To rebuke our presumption and challenge our despair, number two. Now, this is not original with me. I'm borrowing it from Martin Luther, who wrote this. I've printed it for you there in your notes. The church of God, that's us, has great need of these examples. Genesis 38. For what would become of us, what hope would be left for us if Peter had not denied Christ and all the apostles had not taken offense at him and if Moses and Aaron and David had not fallen? We could add Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, you see. Therefore, God wanted to console sinners with these examples and to say, if you have fallen, return, for the door of mercy is open to you. You who are conscious of no sin, do not be presumptuous, but both of you should trust in my grace and mercy. So the caution for us is to not be presumptuous. If these great men of the faith... From years gone by, sinned in these ways. What prevents us from the same? We are no better. We are broken humanity. We are fallen man. We have hearts of stone that are corrupt and wicked. But then, if and when we do sin, and we're tempted to despair in our sin, there's reason for hope. Romans 5, verse 20 encourages us, and you might jot it in the margin. Romans 5, 20 encourages us that when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That doesn't give us a license for sin at all, but it encourages us that God can overrule in the worst of circumstances. You say, but pastor, where is that? And and how is that? There's nothing in this chapter that gives us any hint of God's grace overruling the corruption and the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. And I would say this to you pastorally. We despair in the present because we don't know the rest of the story in the future. You say, but Pastor Matt, I've made a mess of things. I've sinned. The consequences of my sin are inescapable and I don't know how to move forward. Have you ever felt like that? And you despair in your current sinfulness. Let me show you the end of the story of Judah to encourage you. We need to go to chapter 49. Genesis 49, turn with me there. In Genesis 49, verse number one, Jacob called his sons together. What would he say to them? What would Jacob say about the pagan woman that Judah had married? What would Jacob say about the wickedness of Onan and Ur? What would he say about the wretched business with Tamar? Interestingly enough, Jacob didn't mention these things. If you look at verse number 8, in verse 8, Jacob recognized Judah as first a leader. Verse number 8, Judah this is Jacob speaking to his son Judah, who we just read about in Genesis 38. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah would be a mighty leader. In verse number 9, Jacob then recognizes Judah as a lion. Verse number 9, Judah is a lion's whelp or cub. From the prey, my son, you have, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Judah's tribe would be a royal tribe, just as a, a lion is the king of the beasts. And then in verse number 10, Jacob recognized Judah as the one from whom would come the Lord. Look at verse number 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The name Shiloh comes from the same root word as the Hebrew shalom, meaning peace. And here in Jacob's prophecy, it re- refers not to a place, but to a person. It points to the person the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Folks, you got to follow this now. For Father Jacob, he would have preferred to pronounce these things upon his favorite son, Joseph. But rather, he was directed by God to identify Judah as the one through whose line would bring us the Messiah, the leader, the lion, and the Lord of all who would hold that scepter. And so, in some way, as Father Jacob looks at Judah, the sin of Genesis 38 was standing, he could see Jesus. And so I would offer you, number three, Genesis 38 is important because it points us to the glory of the Messiah. And God's sovereign grace was present even in the wickedness of Genesis 38. The promise of the Messiah would be from the line of Judah, including Tamar, including their son Perez. Matthew's genealogy, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1 Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez by Tamar. That's what we just read in Genesis 38. All the way to Jesus Christ. Why is Genesis 38 important? Because it points us to Jesus Christ. And folks, when Jesus came... As the promised Messiah, he came to save sinners. His death and shed blood on the cross was to to purchase the forgiveness of our sin. His resurrection was to promise us everlasting life. And folks, Jesus is coming again to gather his church and to rapture sinners who are saved by grace and then subsequently to redeem his people, Israel. In spite of all the wickedness of Israel. In spite of the wickedness of man and in spite of war, the war of man, I'm even mindful of what's happening now in the Middle East, in the Holy Land. Jesus is the Messiah who will come and save. Let's pray. God in heaven, we ask that you will show us Jesus. Lord, we're We grieve the wickedness of man and the sinfulness that we read of this morning. But Lord, we rejoice knowing that that in your grand sovereign plan you were ordaining even the wickedness of man to accomplish your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to rebuke our presumption. We are no better than these men. That you would help us And challenge us in our despair, knowing that your grace and mercy can overrule. Lord, ultimately, show us Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen.